How do you do? Mr. Carl Emily feels it would be a little unkind to present this picture without just a word of friendly warning. We are about to unfold the story of Frankenstein, a man of science who sought to create a man after his own image without reckoning upon God. It is one of the strangest tales ever told. It deals with the two great mysteries of creation, life and death. I think it will thrill you. It may shock you. It might even horrify you. So if any of you feel that you do not care to subject your nerves to such a strain, now is your chance to... Uh, well, we've warned you. Welcome to Two Old Farts Talk Sci-Fi. I'm David Klink. And I'm Troy Harkin. So off the top of the uh, episode there, we heard the opening from Frankenstein. Um, and it's been parodied many times, and I'm sure you do know it if you are a fan of uh, any of the classic Universal films at all. Um, today, I'm so excited to have our special guest on David, uh, Michael Rowe, who we've known for quite a while. You'll give the details of, of that background, I guess. Um, but before we went too deep, I just wanted to say how much I've enjoyed uh, a couple of his novels, October and Wildfell. Um, just uh, an amazingly talented writer. Um, this is our third episode of season two. Today's episode looks at universal classic monsters. Uh, these include the four primary monsters, Dracula, Frankenstein, the mummy, and the wolfman. And there are others. We are recording this episode on Saturday, November 6, 2021, and scheduled for broadcast on Saturday, November 13th. Uh, we have a special guest as uh, Troy said, Michael Rowe, who is a novelist, horror aficionado, and an expert on monsters, both old and new. Before that, Troy will give us a spoiler alert. Spoiler alert! Spoiler alert! Spoiler alert! Thanks, Troy. We are recording the session via Zoom. In the interest of transparency, both Troy and I have known Michael for years. Let's introduce our special guest. Michael Rowe is the Shirley Jackson Award finalist author of three novels, Enter Night, Wild Fowl, and October, all available from Open Road Media, as well as an essayist and former journalist. A 17-year veteran of Fangoria magazine, he is also a National Magazine Award finalist, a GLAAD Media Award co-finalist, and the winner of the Randy Schiltz Award for Nonfiction from the New York Publishing Triangle. His essays and reviews have appeared in numerous venues in Canada and the United States, including the Globe and Mail, the National Post, Canadian Notes and Queries, and the Boston Globe. Born in Ottawa, he has lived in Beirut, Havana, Geneva, and Paris. He currently resides in Toronto. Welcome, Michael. Thanks, guys. It's great to be here. 
So glad you're with us. Glad to be here. Absolutely. Great topic. Looking forward to it. Yep. Thanks a lot, Michael. Uh, before we get into our Universal Classic Monsters episode, Troy and I would like to know about your early genre loves and all-time faves. This is something we like to ask our guests. We want to know how you were first introduced to the speculative genre, whether it be the written word or its cinematic universe. Two Old Farts Talk Sci-Fi is a look back to when we fell in love with the speculative genre to recall these times with fondness and affection. I think... Boris Karloff said it best when he said, the monster was the best friend I ever had. Michael, what was your first speculative genre memory? It's kind of funny. Um, we, were, we were living in Havana for three years when I was a kid, and we returned to Canada in 1969. So it was a complete culture shock already, just in terms of weather and colors and everything like that. But I remember visiting a relative and going down to the basement and finding the Aurora Monsters um, uh, puzzle or um, model kits um, on, on, a, on a cousin's table. And I was absolutely fascinated by the the luridness of the colors, the, the Dracula, you know, holding the candle and the Frankenstein, you know, with all of those, the, the, the Karloff Frankenstein with, with those, the greens and everything like that. And it kind of made an impression. I think there was also a Vampirella that was quite striking because I'd never seen anything quite that grown up in my life. And I was very impressed with that as well. And then it sort of one one Saturday afternoon, I was watching cartoons, uh, you know, in, in the rec room, and um, uh, I think it was Abbott and Costello's Frankenstein came on, and I I just it was love at first sight. That is as far as I'm concerned. That is my first experience with these monsters and with this kind of this kind of horror culture. It was in black and white. Obviously, we had a black and white TV, so you know I'm glad that there wasn't a color version <laughs> that I missed. But, uh, you know, there was something about the shadows and the richness and the drama. Um, I kind of edited around the comedy because I tend to like my horror horror and my comedy comedy. But it's still a magnificent movie. I mean, the scene where, you know, Abbott and Costello are, are futzing around, you know, in, in the dark while Dracula is coming out of his coffin. I'm looking at that and I'm thinking it, it really just that it doesn't necessarily get better than that. Like that's it's that's pretty spot on. It still works all these years later. And that's the universal aesthetic. Yes, 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 absolutely. And we'll certainly get into that during the episode. Um, now, yeah. and I think you may have already answered this question about the first speculative genre thing that you actually fell in love with. Oh, Dracula, absolutely. There was something about, um, I, you know, I, I always had a, had a fondness for stories about witches and ogres. My mother was an inveterate fairy tale reader. Um, but there was something about seeing Dracula for the first time, and I think it was probably Bela Lugosi's Dracula, um, not in the movie, but in in imagery. And I was looking at that, and I was thinking, this is just magnetic. This is just fantastic. Look at the way the cape drapes. Look at the shadows. You know, look at look at the eyes, and and the the embodiment of that kind of you know nocturnal power. Uh, the operatic nocturnal power was just breathtaking to me. It's it's still I get shivers when I think about it. Well, thanks a lot, Michael. Um, we would like to get into our all-time or into your all-time genre faves. Um, here are some rapid-fire questions about your favorite genre things. When we talk about genre, we mean the speculative genre, which is science fiction, fantasy, and horror, and the sub-genres within them. We are just looking for titles, but if you feel the urge, you can expand a bit. We do wish to get to talking about Universal Classic Monsters soon. Please. Take it away, Troy. 
Okay, Michael, what is your favorite genre movie? Horror of Dracula with Christopher Lee. What's your favorite genre TV show? Mike Flanagan's Midnight Mass, which just ran. Wow. Okay, so I, I need to know then just quickly, what did that surpass? What, what, was, what was it previously? Um, probably sequentially his other two shows. Um, <laughs> Very nice. Um, and also The Haunting of Hill House. I, I'd never seen anything like that. I, 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 it, 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 played, it played me like an orchestra. Um, and all the things I like as a, as a horror writer and as, a, as an essayist, all the great human themes about family and loss and grieving and the scariest crap, you know, so it, it just hit all of my buttons. Yeah. And of course, I'm going to bog us down now because this is supposed to be the rapid fire section, but it's incredible work. <laughs> Everything Flanagan has done, it moves me. And that's not something that always happens within genre writing, genre film, whatever, but he does it. He nails it. Um, and yeah. I think this is probably an appropriate place to mention uh, the the spotting of Wildfell <laughs> within Midnight Mass because uh, is it episode six, Michael? Where episode, uh, one of three. The, episode, episode three. three, where one of the characters yeah. is re- reading Wildfell. It gave me chills uh, to see that. <laughs> and again, as a little sidebar, I, I also wanted to mention that when we get deep into uh, Midnight Mass, um, there's a creature that we see that reminded me a lot of the way I imagined uh, one of the creatures from October. Um, did, did you, and then I'm not, I'm just, I think that's, it's a compliment yeah, yeah, to everybody, yeah, I but mean, did you find that? Is I, that I, how you saw I, the creature I, I, in October? I did, I did find it. Yeah, I did. I, I, he kind of reminded me of, of, of the creature from Enter Night a little bit. Mm. Um, but, um, you know, yeah, sure. I mean, it, it's, uh, I think it's safe to say that, uh, Mike Flanagan and I have a similar horror aesthetic. Right. Well, um, I hope I, 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 it, it just, it, it, it did feel like a really good fit, you know, and, and it, it felt like a click. You know, it, it was really quite nice. Well, I hope we see at some point a Flanagan adaptation of one of your books because I think you you two are a good fit. Let me ask you this one, Michael. What's your favorite television, single television episode that's a, a genre TV episode? The final episode of The Haunting of Hill House. Uh, Mike Flanagan again, sorry. Yeah. I'm a fanboy. Yeah. <laughs> uh, genre, theme, or concept, what's your favorite? Oh, um, isolated people in a house, um, cut off from everyone in the wilderness with supernatural things inside. Genre novel. What's your favorite one? Dracula. What's your favorite genre, shorter work, novella or short story? Uh, Stephen King's one for the road in the night shift, uh, short story collection. Okay. How about your favorite genre author? Susan Hill. Okay. Uh, do you have a favorite genre theater production or musical? Um, probably, you know, it's kind of lame, but I would have to say the Rocky Horror Picture Show. Yeah. How about your favorite comic book series or graphic novel? Tomb of Dracula from the 1970s. That was Gene Colan, right? Who did a lot of the illustrating. Yes. I know oh, there's yeah. many. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. I only have a few yeah, left over, but um, those I are, love those Colan's paradise for me. Yeah. I learned how to write from those guys. Really? That's amazing. Yeah. 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 Um, what's your favorite genre poem? The Highwaymen. And I think we're now on to our recently added a la carte section where I'll just give you a few possibilities that you can add to your uh, 
your uh, dining and dancing pleasure of, of genre. Um, and you don't need to pick any of them, really, if you don't like. But if something tickles your fancy, let us know. Do you have a favorite podcast, audiobook, documentary, uh, nonfiction essay or book, nonfiction book or essay, uh, filk, or even a favorite fish? Um, I think my favorite audiobook is probably the reading of A Woman in Black. Um, and I wish I could remember the name of the actor that reads it is absolutely exquisite. Susan Hill's, uh, Susan Hill's book. Um, my favorite nonfiction book or essay collection is probably Douglas Winter's Faces of Fear, which um, are a series of short interviews with horror writers um, of the, I guess, 80s and 90s, 70s, late 70s, 80s and 90s era. Um, it's fascinating to to read um, um, Anne Rice being mentioned as, uh, you know, uh, um, an apparently one-time entry into the field, which is kind of <laughs> kind of fantastic in in, in retrospect. Yeah, um, that's pretty much it. I, I'm not hip enough for most podcasts, except this one, obviously, which I adore. <laughs> All right. Yes. Welcome to the world of the old farts. I know it's exciting. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, on to our Universal Classic Monsters. Troy Harkin will give some background. Set it in context before we get into a full discussion on it. Take it away, Troy. Clearly, there is nothing new about monsters in the human psyche or the world we live in. Antiquity shows us portrayals of the Cyclops, Minotaurs, Medusa... In art, we have the hellish creatures of Hieronymus Bosch and Henry Fuseli's 1781 painting, The Nightmare, featuring an incubus sitting on a sleeping woman's stomach, to name just two works. In The Tempest, Shakespeare gave us the malformed Caliban. So it should not surprise us that with the advent of moving pictures in the 19th century that we would see monsters depicted on the silver screen. In 1910, Thomas Edison shot the first screen adaptation of Frankenstein, while in Germany, F.W. Murnau gave us the chilling 1922 masterpiece Nosferatu, which plundered Stoker's novel Dracula for its story. These silent screen horrors caused a sensation with audiences. In 1923, Carl Lemley's 11-year-old company Universal Pictures adapted Victor Hugo's The Hunchback of Notre Dame for the cinema. It featured Lon Chaney, in the title role. Cheney went on to star in The Phantom of the Opera for Universal. Both films were huge money makers for the studio. Remarkably, Cheney did all of his own makeup for these grotesque characters. Sound came to film at the end of the 1920s, and Universal decided to re-release The Phantom of the Opera with a newly added soundtrack. Despite being released in the first full year of the Great Depression, the sound version of Phantom grossed a million dollars. Carl Lemley was convinced that he could go all in on the combination of horror stories and sound film. Sadly, although Lon Chaney played a major part in horror cinema's growing popularity, as well as its evolution as an art form, the actor died of lung cancer in the summer of 1930. He would not live to see the great successes that his work had laid foundation for. Dracula, starring Hungarian Bela Lugosi as The Count, was the first film released in what would later be known as the Universal Classic Horror Films. Reportedly, Lugosi's portrayal caused women to swoon. The film brought in $700,000, the most of any Universal film in 1931. 
Within a period of 10 years, Universal gave us the legendary screen monsters Dracula, Frankenstein, The Mummy, The Wolfman, and The Invisible Man. Carl Emley unleashed a world of monsters that would eventually interconnect with other films, the 20th century equivalent of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Each of these original films had quality filmmaking in common. All of them were either based on famous literary works or legends. They all featured stunning performances by the likes of Lugosi, Karloff, Claude Rains, or Lon Chaney Jr. All featured stunning visual effects and showcased grotesque makeups by Jack Pierce. All were helmed by excellent directors like James Whale, Todd Browning, George Wagner, and Carl Freund. All of these films were successful enough to warrant sequels and entire franchises for their title characters. All told, between 1931 and 1956, Universal released 41 films featuring their classic monsters. This also included three Creature from the Black Lagoon films. In the late 1950s, Britain's Hammer Films dusted off many of these creatures and built their own franchise of horror cinema featuring Peter Cushing and Christopher Lee in roles once played by Lugosi and Karloff. We'll have much more on Hammer horror in future episodes. Although the Universal Monsters have remained iconic and their place in film history is untouchable, their scare factor has diminished over the years through oversaturation and parody. The horror comedies of Abbott and Costello began in the 1940s, wherein Bud and Lou would come face to face with various Universal monstrosities. In the 1960s, spoofs of the monsters were featured in sitcoms like The Munsters and The Addams Family. In 1961, the Monster Mash became a number one hit single for Bobby Boris Pickett and the Crip Kickers. The song features imitations of Karloff and Lugosi and name drops the monster, the wolfman, Dracula, and his son. In 1974, Mel Brooks had a box office hit with his comedy Young Frankenstein, while Canadian television produced the kids' show The Hilarious House of Frightenstein. Also in the 70s, there were even more monster parodies on General Mills cereal boxes of Count Chocula and Frankenberry. Don't be scared. I'm the super sweet monster with the super sweet new cereal, Count Chocula. Bethel. Here's the super sweet new cereal, Frankenberry. But I've got chocolate sweeties for monstrous chocolate flavor. Well, I've got berry-flavored sweeties for monstrous strawberry flavor. Count Chocula. Frankenberry. Hi. <laughs> Frankenberry. Count Chocula. But the love for the original Universal Monsters never died, as they were celebrated in magazines like Forrest Ackerman's Famous Monsters of Movie Land. I remember in the 1970s, every boy I knew had at least one Aurora model kit of Frankenstein, Dracula, the Mummy, or the Wolfman. Since 1999, all of Universal's classic monsters have seen relaunches, beginning with the Mummy, and most recently with Elizabeth Moss starring in 2020's The Invisible Man. And that's it, David. Um, thanks a lot, Troy. Uh, Michael, can you tell us how you were first introduced to uh, Universal Classic Monsters? Sure. In um, 1973, my father was posted to the United Nations uh, in Geneva, and we moved into a big old house in the country um, with a clear view of, of Lake Geneva. And I was reading Frankenstein, a children's version of Frankenstein at the time. So it was quite, um, quite uh, evocative. One of the things that, one of the advantages of um, being a diplomatic family is that we had access to the, uh, the PX 
at the Canadian Army base in Lahr, Germany. And I was incredibly homesick at that point for my comic books, uh, my, my, my vampire comics, my friends, um, and pretty much everything that everything Canadian, um, everything North American. So arriving at the bookstore, at the Stars and Stripes bookstore at the Canadian PX was a revelation for me because I was so homesick and I found this, this um, magazine rack and I pulled up my first edition of Famous Monsters of Filmland. Um, as I mentioned before, uh, you know, I, I loved the Tomb of Dracula comments in the 70s, but they were, um, they were identifiably based on the Hammer versions of Dracula. So the universal version of these monsters kind of eluded me, um, had eluded me up to that point. And I remember pulling this magazine down off the, the magazine stand and being absolutely riveted, uh, finding images of Lugosi as Dracula and, and the various movies from, from, from his, his own canon and Boris Karloff and Lon Chaney. And it was, it, I didn't think it was possible to have another horror revelation at that point. I thought I was already, I was 11 or something. I thought I knew all this, all, all about all this stuff, but, uh, the Famous Monsters of Filmland was was a defining moment in my childhood, and I bought other copies of it, and I became familiar with all of these movies without actually having seen any of them. Um, so it was kind of almost an anticlimax by the time I actually got to see to see these movies. But the imagery was so imprinted on my brain; it was part of my DNA by that point. Yeah, yeah. Do you have any any of those memories, Dave? Um, I just remember watching some of these films back in the early or mid seventies when they were just repeated on TV on the, in the you know, on the afternoon. Uh, and that's how I got introduced to them when I was 10 or 11 or 12. Um, and certainly the film, can you imagine like that and King Kong and some of these films back in those days when they first came out and you would watch them compared to, you know, at that time, these would have been quite astounding uh, films to watch. Yeah, on a big screen, can you imagine? I've, I've still never seen King Kong on a large screen, and I would love to. I have. Uh, it's breathtaking. Oh, yeah? Yeah. I did when I was, when I was a kid. It came to a rep theater in town, and, and I was able to see it, and it was just amazing. It, it made me feel out of place, you know, out of time. That's incredible. Because it was so effective. And the yeah. sound would be great as well, I would assume. Yeah, yeah, yeah no, I know. So, you know, it's funny. I don't remember the first time I saw Frankenstein, but it obviously made an impression because I had nightmares of Frankenstein, recurring nightmares of Frankenstein for years. Um, I think my mom must have been hard of hearing <laughs> because she always listened to the television very loud. And that's, you know, again, as I mentioned earlier, how things like the night gallery freaked me out, just hearing that being in bed and hearing it um, and, mm -hmm. and uh, you know, other things. But anyway, I would have this nightmare of Frankenstein just lumbering towards me, never getting me, me running like crazy and, and him just lumbering, you know, but it somehow I could never gain any, any space. Um, so so Frankenstein certainly made his mark on my psyche very early. Um, and then I guess, you know, it all became a little bit more friendly through things like magazines, as Michael mentioned, um, and the models. Like, I, I, I was a, became a model builder as a kid, but I wanted nothing to do with airplanes and cars, as a lot of my 
friends did. I, I just wanted the uh, the Universal Monsters, Godzilla, <laughs> King Kong, and then I got into the Planet of the Apes models. Um, but yeah, I mean, I all of my friends when I think of uh, I had this. My, a series of friends in the seventies and we lived in this small apartment complex. So the, the, the housing was not that big and, and bedrooms weren't that big, but everybody, when you went into their, their bedroom, everybody had a model, you know, whether it was mm. King Kong with the, and, and I was of the era of the glow in the face, the glow in the dark ones, like the, the green faces that, that would glow in the dark. Um, and everybody had one and you, and you needed to have one. It was the thing to have, you know, along with those, do you guys remember those stickers that were out for a while that were like parodies of advertising? Yes. And there was also ones I, I think that were parodies of monsters, but I'm not sure. I'm not sure if I'm confusing two different things. And then of course the comics, because I was a huge, uh, again, planet of the apes fan, but you would see on the newsstand things like tomb of Dracula. And mm. as you mentioned, Vampirella, um, it just occurred to me, is Vampirella's outfit the same one that Zardoff wears, basically? <laughs> did did uh, <laughs> Sean Connery slip into Vamp Vampirella's outfit for, for Zardoff? <laughs> anyway, those I, are... Yeah, go ahead, Michael. Sorry. Yeah, no. no, no, no. I was just thinking about <laughs> Vampirella. I realized that I've spent 50 years trying to understand how that outfit stays on or how it, how it works. And just remembering <laughs> now, I still, I still cannot figure out how it actually how you get into that outfit. <laughs> I think it's, uh, it's probably something... probably just as well for everyone on Halloween. <laughs> yeah. And, and there's something, probably... something from the Roswell crash, I think. One of the things that we picked up from that reverse engineered. Yeah. Um, and it's probably, probably one of the reasons you don't see too many uh, Vampirella cosplay outfits because it probably doesn't yeah. work. It just does not it's work. Immersive. Yeah. No, yeah and I think maybe if, except for maybe you could get away with it with body paint, but that's about all I, yeah. I can imagine. Yeah. Um, so that's well, me, Dave. Where are we yeah, off well, to me, now? Fact, well, I, I agree with Michael on that. I think both of you read, I certainly read Tomb of Dracula. That was one of my go-to in the early to mid-70s, along with all the other... The writing uh, still holds up. The writing still holds up in Tomb of Dracula. It's incredible. I, I reread it periodically, and I, it's still great storytelling and really great writing. Hmm. I also had, and I still do have... Um, the classics illustrated version of Frankenstein that's that's been in the family for ages um no not obviously not the universal version although I guess the cover art on it does kind of bear a lot of resemblance to Karloff speaking of the comics I love I, I actually in my rewatch of the films recently I have a, a Frankenstein collection which I think has six films so it gets into sort of the lesser films uh, but one of them is Son of Frankenstein. And by that point, in terms of the costume, Frankenstein is wearing this sort of fur vest, which was adopted in the Frankenstein comics. And I always really liked that look. Um, mm -hmm. And one of the things about Son of Frankenstein is you get Lugosi as well as Karloff in the film. And Karloff, uh, Lugosi is playing Igor. Um, mm -hmm. And that's one of the things that I thought as a kid, I thought, I always thought that, uh, the uh, assistant to Frankenstein was always called Igor. Uh, and so it was interesting going back to Frankenstein, the um, whale version and, and seeing he's not Igor. And mm -hmm. I forget what it is, but it's something like Dave or Steve or something less uh, uh, impressive than Igor. Well, do, do you guys remember what uh, he's called in the first film? 
I noticed that too. I'm trying to remember. I noticed it during the rewatch. Um, no, yeah, I can't no, recall. I friends, maybe, or I, I can't. Oh, remember. something like yeah, something for us. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So yeah, not quite uh, Steve or Bob. <laughs> yeah, the first film was a bit odd because when I was watching the the um, the Dracula film, they meant at the very beginning credits they mentioned that it's based on the novel by Percy B. Shelley. And I was thinking that's kind of an interesting attribution for this film, considering it was Mary Shelley that actually wrote it. David, could I make a slight clarification or, or add something to that? Um, I noticed in the in the Frankenstein, the, the first Frankenstein, and this really struck me. It's the novel is credited as Mrs. Percy B. Shelley. Ah, it's actually. Oh, sorry. I mean, can you imagine calling Mary Shelley at that point Mrs. Percy B. Shelley? That's incredible. I, d- yeah, I didn't notice that. Yeah, yeah sorry, I just incredible. glanced at it. So thank you for the correction, Michael. Um, but yeah. yeah, that kind of attribution is quite horrific, so to speak. Yeah, yeah. How much do you love Elsa Lanchester's uh, Mary Shelley, as well as that the whole, bride? That whole scene is just so funny. Uh, it's it, it, the the uh, the Lord Byron character in particular flouncing around. It just you look at him, you <laughs> think this is a you know the the the, the original incel. And there's there's Elsa Lanchester doing her embroidery, you know, with, with that clipped right. English accent. I thought she was fantastic. And you know, it's funny because I'm so familiar with Elsa Lanchester playing the monster. I didn't realize how absolutely beautiful she is. Oh, she's that's gorgeous. Right. She's dropped she's egg gorgeous. gorgeous. Yeah. Yeah. Now I've always wanted to do a, a recut um, when I used to have my 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 editing system at home, where I would make one film out of. Frankenstein and the bride and I would throw the intro to bride right to the beginning of, of, you know, the two films Um, because I've always sort of been fascinated with how, you know, bride tries to address the things that they left out of the novel. Um, And I still would love to recut that somehow and just make one film. But Mm -hmm. but bride is to me, is it's just so much fun. It does so yeah. many things, and it's, it seems like it succeeds in all the things it attempts to do, whether it's humor um, or, you know, the pathos that you get from Karloff. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I agree with you, Michael. Generally, I am very much the same way. I, I'm not big on on uh, humorous horror films, you know, like Evil Dead 2 is sort of an exception. There's not many right. of them that I, I would list as really liking. But it just, I can't get over what Whale achieves with that film mm. and gets away with yeah yes and gets away with yeah uh, one of the There's... things that uh, mike mark asquith mentioned was just you know the, the enduring uh sense of frankenstein and how it's one of my favorite novels it's probably second behind dune for me but there was an adaptation for the national theater where they had benedict cumberbatch and johnny lee miller playing the two main roles and then the next night they reverse them like like the, the one plays the monster and the other one plays the scientist which i thought was quite brilliant now what would be cool is if national theater can bring bride of frankenstein and you would have someone like a benedict cumberbatch and maybe whoever the current young actress in britain playing that and then have them reverse the roles the next night would be quite something um, mm-hmm. I think I would ha- enjoy that. But um, one of the things I wanted to ask you, Michael, is about what, why do you think that these monsters are still relevant? What is it about them that still can speak to the current generation? 
Hmm. It's really funny because we're living in the age, the literal age of the reinvention and the remake. So talking about their relevance is, is, is an interesting, interesting thing. I tend to think of them as being iconic imagery in the same way that, that certain Renaissance art is iconic imagery. We don't really think in too much in terms of it being part of today's culture, but it's always there as the standard in a weird sort of a way. Um, I think, I think that, um, I, I, you know, I'm not a huge fan. Generally speaking, I'm not a huge fan of remakes, but I must say in the larger, in the larger context with the universal monsters, these were monsters and stories that were in dire need of depth. That was one of the things that struck me during my my rewatch was how simplistic so many of the stories were, and they were they were tailor made for the time. But you know, there's such a thing as giving too much backstory, but but there's also such a thing as not having enough backstory. And I think that if we have if we've learned anything from these monsters, which unfortunately, or or maybe just maybe it's not unfortunate, maybe it's just life, they've been parodied so many times and reinvented and repackaged for commercial purposes so many times that it's almost impossible to see Karloff's Frankenstein and not think of the Munsters or, you know, Frankenberry cereal. And the same thing with, with Bela Lugosi as Dracula. That's been parodied. I can think of the count, you know, but imagine the, the, the importance of being the original and still being around. I mean, these monsters are still hanging on the walls, so to speak, you know, in, in, in the museums of the mind. Um, so that's, you know, that, and, I, and I think that people will always go back and study them and they will, yeah, you know, I don't know, it's going to kick back and, you know, just sort of kick back and enjoy it, except, you know, sort of people like us. But, uh, you know, they're, they're icons and, and the icons mm-hmm. have their place. Well, my biggest takeaway for, for if I can just jump in for a second with Frankenstein, the original one with the Boris Karloff, was the makeup because you had, you could see his expressions. You can see Frankenstein and how he's reacting to things so yep. amazingly that and Karloff does such a great job of it that I can just feel the emotion, feel the trepidation, mm-hmm. feel what he, the monster is going through, which makes that monster yeah. empathetic. I think. Yes, very much yeah. so. Yeah, that was a point I was about to address too, Dave. And that's great that that you nailed that. That um, and it's something that Jack Pierce was adamant about he didn't want to go to rubber masks um as that was becoming the industry standard um, because he was afraid that you would lose that ability for the actors to emote um and and that's what got me i I was thinking you know despite all of the parodies and and you know the oversaturation when you watch these films and you see these close-ups of both lugosi uh and Karloff, man, what they do with, with, you know, basically without dialogue quite often, mm-hmm. um, it's remarkable. Like it pulls you in and you know what's going on or, you know, whether you want to in the case of Lugosi, because he can be mesmerizing. Um, but, and actually, you know what, the, the film that sort of surprised me in my rewatch was The Mummy. Um, there's something about that film that I love the atmosphere that is conveyed. And I guess that was, um, that was Freund who directed that one. Um, but Karloff, I could just watch Karloff say nothing. Um, as, um, I forget his character's name. Let me look through my notes here. Mr. Bay. That's right. That's right. Ardeth Bay. Um, and, uh, like I'm, I've used it a few times now, but really it's a compelling performance. He's mesmerizing. Um, 
I loved Zita Johan's performance. Um, I found her really captivating and she kept reminding me of Louise Brooks, sort of of the era of um, Pabst's um, Pandora's Box. Um, for sure. Um, th- th- I've got some more questions. We're going to be um, moving on to looking at some of our favorite lines and some other stuff in the podcast. But um, one of the things, because the, the, the Universal Classic Monsters weren't simply Dracula, Frankenstein, the Mummy, and the Wolfman, even though that was the main part of the franchise. But outside of that, what were, because for me, it was, definitely would be the Invisible Man and the Creature from the Black Lagoon. But are there other, those ones and others, what are the ones that you're, are your favorites? Uh, I, the Invisible Man, absolutely, for me. I, I uh, rewatched that recently, and I was really uh, impressed, um, first of all, uh, at James Whale's special effects, I kept thinking that just a couple of years before, uh, Todd Browning was dangling a plastic bat on a you know on an elastic string in Dracula, and here's this guy um, unwrapping bandages, and I'm looking at this and I'm thinking this is just really amazing, and the, the this, there's a genuine sweep of evil in the character of the Invisible Man that I think is missing, ironically, in a lot of the other the other movies, um, Dracula and Frankenstein, once again. It's sort of they're operatic on their on their own on their own level, but the Invisible Man says something really honest about the danger of insanity and power coming together. Um, and and really, I found it quite terrifying. I mean, I I still find the idea of someone invisible, you know, next to you, really chilling. And I thought I thought it was handled really beautiful beautifully. And it it really it's an easy watch. It's 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 really quite scary. You know, the Black Lagoon, yeah, not so much. Mm. No, he really is the Aquaman of the group. Yeah, yeah. Um, one of the things I did like in the recent uh, reboot of the Elizabeth Moss version of uh, the, the Invisible Man was the fact that you weren't ever sure if he was around. In fact, there were, I think, parts of that film where you wondered if she was just nuts. Um and because uh, that's the, the my only issue I had with some of the Invisible Man was how much they wanted to do the voiceover and mm-hmm. and, and make you aware of like he's really there. <laughs> I guess they were afraid you would think that he wasn't. But um, I found his laugh irritating. The, the maniacal uh, laughter probably yeah. worked really well. Yeah, very, actually, you're right. Very grating to very grating to a contemporary ear. Yeah, you're right. You know, it it, it doesn't have to be likable. And again, I. I almost jumped on the Trump thing. I won't do that right now. Well, during <laughs> the, uh, the, 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 cause I watched the invisible and then I thought, you know, why not watch it with the commentary, the, the, the version of the movie where they're talking over it. And they did make it clear that, and I, and I think maybe on, on TCM, the person introducing it was talking about how they, that was part of what they wanted to do was to make it very clear to the audience. So they don't get confused or not know that there's all these little effects of the chair moving or, or maybe something moving and whatever it is that you, they wanted it, you know, it's almost like talking down to the audience, but it wasn't that bad to make it clear that you know where this invisible man is. It was very effective. I, I didn't. Yeah. I didn't mind that at all. I just, and also very sophisticated camera angles. The way the camera follows the invisible man's movement. Um, oh. you know, when he knocks over a chair, then opens a door, and the camera just follows that along. And I think, did I just actually see him, or is the camera is the camera angle so fantastic that that I'm just being told a story without without images? Yeah, 
Yeah, that's the thing too, where you have to reconsider what it would have been like to see that film in the 1930s. You know, it just must've yeah. been amazing. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So I'm going to insert a little thing that I do sometimes, Michael, where I make a Beatles connection because I can't help but do that. <laughs> so my Beatles connection for the, for this is that in Yellow Submarine, there's a bit where Ringo discovers Frankenstein's monster on a slab in a laboratory. The monster drinks a formula from a beaker and turns into John Lennon. So there you go. That's your <laughs> Beatles connection for the Universal <laughs> Monsters. <laughs> Um, so we're running out of time. Uh, we've got more of our segment, but at this point, one question I, I did have or, or something that Troy and I came up with was the idea of you've got the Frankenstein, the scientists, and you've got the monster. And one question we had is who is the real monster? Is it the scientist or is it the mon- the creature? And also we're referring to them as the villagers, or in my case, I call them the village people, which might be incorrect. Um, <laughs> uh, and the idea of the mob, and I don't know if Michael, if you wanted to talk just about the, because I think you were looking into the idea of, of what it, you know, these mobs that chase after monsters and what they're like. Yeah. You know, it's really funny. Um, I was trying to watch Frankenstein and trying to picture how it would have been seen when it was first, um, when it was first released. There's a scene when Frankenstein's waking up that, and is feeling himself that that is just breathtakingly painful to watch. He's holding, Karloff is holding his hands up and looking at them and the expression on his face is so vulnerable. Um, It's so obvious that he's basically like a newborn child, albeit one fairly grotesque to look at. So it's very, it was very difficult for me to release that image of him as being this vulnerable creation, um, pushed around by the scientists who made him, uh, sent out, cast out, particularly in, you know, in, in, in Bride of Frankenstein, where he's, you know, it's like the, the bride doesn't like him. So Dr. Pretoria says, okay, get out of here. Like, get out. You know, like this, this creature who has only ever known the people in the room. So he, you know, he, he goes out and he, you know, does what he does. He doesn't kill maliciously or in, or in, or um, uh, on purpose. Um, even when he chucks a little girl into the water, there's no sense that he's doing it to kill her. He just wants her out of the way. Um, and then the, the mob, the mob kicks up and they're there with their torches and the, the you know, the, the insistent demand for, for instant justice uh, without the benefit of a trial or anything. They're just the monster bad. He has to go. He has to die. So, you know, it, it, it's hard, it's hard not to see, it's hard for a contemporary audience not to see um, the monster as the victim and the crowd as being the genuine monster. But at the same time, it's so clear from the way it's written that the audience in the 30s was intended to see the monster as the monster. And the crowd is just doing mm-hmm. their due diligence. And you've got to think that this is, this is uh, you know, this, this is a, a world, this is a country at that time that, you know, was going through wars. Um, xenophobia was running at an all-time high, you know, racial issues in the South, which never stopped. So the idea of, of the other um, was a very, very embedded part of the culture. And I think that the monster is, is very much the victim of that. But what's fascinating to me, as I said before, was that when you're looking at it as a member of the audience, you're intended to see the monster as a, as a source of evil. And I, I found that, that dichotomy absolutely fascinating because whale, 
was a sophisticated filmmaker and somebody who'd seen a great deal of pain. So I wonder sometimes what must have been going through his mind when he was when he was doing this, because he, he would have known the nuances. Have you seen um, Halloween Kills, Michael? I know no interest. Okay, yeah, good, good. No, don't don't no. save your money yeah, and go yeah, see yeah. last night in yeah, Soho no, instead. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. But there is this. I I did uh, go regrettably, <laughs> but there's a a scene at the you end. Took, of, you took a bullet for us. That's great, Craig. I did. Thank there's you. a there's a scene that clearly is. Uh, I guess I'm doing a name drop here. Harkening, harkening back to um, the Frankenstein films towards the end, where they're chasing Michael and they're chanting like this is everybody in town is. <laughs> him through the hospital chanting evil dies tonight and mm-hmm. and Sounds you know I'm, yeah and i'm sure you're supposed to see the irony of of you know yeah. of the mob there but sometimes um, it's done right like like for example edward scissorhands which is sort of a yeah. throwback or, or an homage to that kind of film where you've got you are hoping that you, you do feel for edward instead of the May mob I do it? trying to May I do a tiny sideways jump to, to what I was saying before, just really quickly? Mm-hmm. I noticed that in The Creature from the Black Lagoon as well. Um, you, you, you've got two guys swimming underwater with a spear gun, and they just shoot the creature from the Black Lagoon because it's different. And the audience is supposed to go, yeah, he's a monster, shoot him. And, you know, up on the, on, on the boat, you've got the, you know, the buff guys with their shirts off with the swimsuits and the girl who does nothing but scream and make comments. Um, and the monster, the creature of the Black Lagoon is simply expected to be evil and bad because he is other. And, and I found that to a, to a contemporary eye, once again, much the same way with King Kong, you know, it doesn't travel. That, that, that sentiment from the 30s and the 40s and the 50s that something is different is automatically bad or dangerous and must right. be killed does not travel well. No. Well, and you even think back to, I can remember, you know, from my childhood and, and certainly b- before that, you know, if a child was born with def- a deformity, um, the idea was you were supposed to keep them locked up somewhere. You know, mm-hmm. they're either supposed to put into an institution where they couldn't be seen or they were, you know, kept at home in the attic or something. Um, and, uh, you know, thank God we've had that change. Um, but the idea of the monster, I think, was a very real one uh, for a long mm-hmm. time. Yeah, and uh, sometimes it can be done right, like The Shape of Water, um, yes. where you do have the people that are for the creature, and they don't think it's just because it's something different. It can't; be, it doesn't have to be bad just because it's mm-hmm. something that's not human. Um, but yeah, you know, the movies are this. Go ahead. Oh, sorry. No, I was just saying if movies are really the subconscious, uh, the subconscious id, uh, uh, you have to look at the, the context of the times and you, you, you suddenly understand um, why the civil rights movement was inevitable. Because, uh, you know, the, 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 the automatic cultural assumption that the good people were always white and straight and the monster was always different and looked different. You know, or or the or the you know a lot of the anti-immigrant sentiment um, of the time, and certainly you know it, it ties into the anti-immigrant sentiment today. But those stories, these monster movies, tell a really, really honest, occasionally quite cutting story about the times in which the the people who made them lived. Absolutely. So uh, this uh, next segment is, these are a few of our favorite words. This is where a guest and Troy and I select uh, sections of the work that we are looking at and read aloud our selections. 
Um, these would be sections of writing or moments in a movie that each of us wish we had either written or directed ourselves. Um, if it's okay, I will start with a few selections. Now, I actually picked uh, five things. Um, from The Mummy, the 1932 film, Joseph is translating an inscription on a box, and he says, death, eternal punishment for anyone who opens this casket in the name of Amun-Ra, the king of gods. And then he makes an, a, a comment, oh, good heavens, what a terrible curse. And then the person next to him, Ralph, eagerly says, well, let's see what's inside. Um, uh, from Frankenstein, this is actually kind of neat because this quote is when the American Film Institute did its top 100 movie quotations in American cinema, this actually reached number 49. Um, so Henry says, look, it's moving. It's alive. It's alive. It's alive. It's moving. It's alive. It's alive. And then he says again, it's alive. It's alive. It's alive. And Victor says, Henry, in the name of God, Henry says, oh, in the name of God, now I know what it feels like to be a God. So that whole, it's a live uh, scene. And you start wondering if you go through the hundred, top hundred American Film Institute quotes, how many of them are actually from genre, or, you know, from speculative, from science fiction, fantasy, and horror. But that certainly is one of the great moments um, from the Wolfman. Watching the Wolfman film again, the 1941 film, this quote that I'm going to have is actually said three times at a certain point where you say, okay, we get it now because three different characters say this in the period of about a three or four minutes. And basically Maleva, I think is the first one to say is even a man who was pure in heart and says his prayers by night may became, may become a wolf when the wolf bane blooms and the autumn moon is bright. Um, I have a fourth one from um, Frankenstein. The fifth one is kind of a fun one from Dracula, a 1931 film. There's an, actually a Transylvanian tourist brochure uh, that a young girl passenger is reading from. And it says, among the rugged peaks that crown down upon the Borgo Pass are found crumbling castles of a bygone age. So it's amazing that they actually have a Transylvanian tourist brochure that this woman <laughs> is reading uh, on a train, I thought was quite uh, fun. But anyway, I don't know if you guys have any other want to comment on these or have any other quotes that you remember. Oh, I've got one, my favorite one, and I had not even noticed it in all of the watchings I'd done of Dracula. There's a scene on the balcony where Jonathan and Mina are sitting there, and Dracula comes in bat form and you know flops around on his elastic band, and Jonathan Harker says, "My, that's a big bat." <laughs> I just thought, you know, my, or my, what a big bat. It just, it's fantastic. Like, it's just breathtaking. Uh, <laughs> so good. Uh, I didn't really look into it, but I think I would probably go with uh, Lugosi's early bit of dialogue of, uh, what is it, listen to them, the children of the night? Mm. Listen to them. Children of the night. What music they make. Um, mm. Just so good. What I would, what I would do, I would, uh, if, if folks have not seen these and are really interested in the world of uh, universal horror, 
particularly Frankenstein, I would suggest that they look to um, the films Gothic by Ken Russell from 1986, uh, Gods and Monsters, Bill Condon's film from 1998, and Mary Shelley from 2007. Um, I wrote a poem many years ago that was the idea that appeared in Asma Science Fiction back in 2006. The idea was that a lot of people referred to Frankenstein. They say, well, that's Frankenstein. And they're actually referring to the monster instead of the scientist. So I actually wrote a poem based on it. So this is what it's what it is. It's called Frankenstein versus the flying squirrels. Yeah, I know. It should be Frankenstein's monster versus the flying squirrels. Most people call the monster Frankenstein, but Frankenstein was the scientist who created the monster. And what was the point anyway? What chance did flying squirrels have against Frankenstein or his monster, even with the element of surprise? So David, what I was thinking was in place of our regular dream casting segment, what we could do is a little thing called either or. Now, I did mention that we will get into a, probably a special on Hammer Horror in the future, but most people, I think, are pretty aware that both Christopher Lee and Peter Cushing played a number of the characters that were originally played in uh, Universal Films. So let me ask you guys, in the case of Dr. Frankenstein, who do you prefer, Colin Clive from the Universal Films, or Peter Cushing? Peter Cushing. David? I would, I would uh, normally go with Peter Cushing, but Colin Clive was so good. In, I, I would still have to go with Peter Cushing, but Colin Clive was really good uh, in that role. Um, he was excellent. Yeah, that's, that was my feeling, too, especially on, on my rewatches. Uh, so how about Frankenstein's Monster? Are we going with Karloff or are we going with Christopher Lee? Karloff. Agreed. Yeah, that's a sweep then for Karloff. Count Dracula. Are we going with Lugosi or are we going with Christopher Lee? Christopher Lee. I'll go with Lugosi on this one, but it's so close. Uh, Christopher Lee is fantastic. Yeah, I I love Lee as Dracula. It's maybe my favorite role of his, and there's been a lot. Well, I probably put up Lord Summer Isle in there as well. But um, we've got the Mummy. Uh, who do you prefer, Karloff or Lee? Uh, Lee, I think there too. David, yeah, I might have to go with Lee as as well. Um, but Karloff is no slouch. He certainly brings it um, for sure. Okay. Lee made him sexy. Lee did. Way. Yeah. I mean, it's like, it's a tall mummy, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And an athletic a, mummy. A long lean mummy too. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Um, you know what? I think we can put a bow on, on this segment. What do you think, David? I think we're good. Thank you, Michael for being our special guest. It was wonderful being here, guys. Thanks so much. I had such a good time. And we have a little bit of uh, housekeeping as we uh, move towards our wrap-up. Um, well, I want to remind everybody that um, you can find Michael's books, Enter Night, 
Wildfell in October online. Um, and David and I, we have our own books. Uh, David's uh, The Role of Lightning in Evolution and my book, uh, Casting Shadows. You can also find them online if you like your poetry weird. And remember to catch us on the interwebs. Uh, our website is 2 numeric2of.ca. We're on Twitter. We're on Facebook. Are we anywhere else, David? We're on, we're, I believe we're on Instagram. I've got to double check on that. But on Facebook, we're Two Old Farts Talk Sci Fi, and Twitter, we're at Two Old Farts Sci Fi, and that's a numeric two. Yeah, we're on Captive. As, as Troy, as you mentioned, you talked about the, your podcast provider. So most people have their own podcast provider, and you can find us there um, for sure. So, anyways, uh, I am David Kling. And I am Troy Harkin. See you all for our next episode of Two Old Farts. Talk sci-fi. Just stop this. Just stop it.